we are now turning our attention to the Word of God back in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5 as we take a look at um, I just realized the scripture reference is not up there, but it's First Thessalonians chapter 5, and this morning we'll only be looking at one verse. It'll be verse 14. So let's read the word and pray and see what the Lord will teach us. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient, with everyone. Father, thank you for our time together in worship. Thank you for all the work that you're doing in your kingdom. Thank you for bringing brothers and sisters together by your providence so that we may be encouraged, so that we may be admonished, so that we may be helped in our weakness. Give us a an insight to the truth that you intend to teach us this morning from your word, by your spirit, through your son Jesus' name, amen. So I want to go through this as quickly as possible because um, we have... um, used our time very much this morning, much of our time, and and really it's appropriate that we have used our time, um, so we have not misused our time. But I want to remind you what we're going through at this portion, in this portion of Scripture, in this passage, in this series, and you see that... um, the, the title of the sermon is actually very creative. The last three weeks I've, I've been in my creative bag, if you can, if you can tell, right? It's um, the church's duty. That's what we saw two weeks ago, right? And then I said, how can I top that? And I said, the church's duty part two. And then this week I read this, I worked through this passage and I was like, you know what? I got to do better. And I say part three. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because this is a duty that the Lord requires from the church. And we saw it in a general sense two weeks ago. Last week, we saw it as a response to those who serve. And more specifically, it's, it's really for those who have the gift of speaking, as Peter puts it. It's how we should respond and recognize and honor those who serve in the church, i.e. those who hold a place of leadership in the church and what the church's duty is in regards to that. And um, this week, I um, want us to take a look at these three attitudes. Um, or, or, or it's part three, but the attitude of the church towards one another. As Paul turns his attention back to how the church should treat each other. How should we treat each other? It's so baffling to me. Sometimes I hear people, um, young people, answer the phone 
friend calls, they answer the phone. First time I heard it, I was so taken back. Answer the phone. What do you want? What? Come to find out, that's actually common. Like, hello has turned into what do you want? I thought that was super rude, and I was just like, hey, did somebody make you mad? And they're like, no, nah, that's just how we talk to each other. Like, how does that even work? But the more I heard it, I guess I, I got used to it. So I, the shock effect kind of, and I don't know if you, if you do that, but, um, but that seems to be the way that the world treats each other, right? It's a term of endearment to call each other out their names even. Um, and, and that kind of creeps into the church at times. And we want to adopt those kinds of cultures from, uh, or those kinds of nuances, those kinds of interactions from the culture around us. But what Paul is teaching us here is how should the church treat one another? And this is a duty. This is a command. This is an urging. This is actually parakaleo. He's saying, hey, let's do this right now. Last week, he asked the church. This week, he's urging the church in Thessalonica. So there's a sense of urgency. There's a sense where you are expected to do this and how to treat each other. So this is to, um, this too is also a duty that you must rise to meet. As he urges the church in Thessalonica, so does he urge us, the church of the remnant. So in this passage, I want to show you four different categories of people in the church. I want us to look at four different categories of, of people in the church, four different dispositions that people have in the church so that it will help you identify and examine yourself if you exhibit any of these predispositions or these behaviors. This will help you examine to see to which category you belong, and there's also four responses that Paul gives us to those four categories. So four categories and four responses. First, let's look at the categories. There's a category of people that are named the unruly, and this would be our outline for today. These are the categories here, four categories, the unruly, the faint-hearted, the weak, and everyone. And as I was looking through this, I want you to see how it kind of develops. I actually saw this this morning as I was going over it, and I was just like, wait, this seems to be kind of like a ripple, right? When you drop something in the middle of an ocean or in the middle of water, there's that point of contact. Which, is, which seems pretty small, and the circle gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So I think Paul might even have that in mind as he's writing this. There's the unruly, and there's a category of people that are the unruly, which we'll unpack here in a second. And that may be a very small percentage of people that may identify as that, or that may examine themselves and say, hey, and if we're honest, we're going to say, no, nah, I'm not the unruly. 
right? So Paul kind of expands it and says he's the faint-hearted. And as we explain what faint-heartedness means, um, we'll, we'll get to see that. But it's a larger people, like, you know, kind of the discouraged. And most people can identify with the discouragement. Right? So it's a bigger group of people or a bigger category. And then he goes to the weak. And we know we are all, we all have weaknesses. Right? Even if we turn them into our strength or the Lord turns it into our weakness. So that, that's even a larger category. And if there's any chance where we can justify and kind of do some mental, psychological aerobics and acrobatics and flip through hoops and jump through fires and stuff like that and find ourselves in none of those categories of people in the church, guess what he says? Everyone. So you're kind of hemmed in. You're cornered. You can't go nowhere. So you've got to identify with one of them. And that doesn't mean that's who you are. I mean, everyone is everyone. But that, the, those three, the first three, that's not who you may not be, but that may be where you are in the season. And the Lord wants to teach us how we ought to respond in these four ways, which is to admonish which is to encourage, which is to help, and to be patient. And I put that word suffer long there because I wanted us to really get familiar with how synonymous suffering long and patient patience is. So let's start looking at these categories to examine real quickly. First category is the unruly. Verse 14 says, Paul says, we urge you brothers, admonish the unruly. Who are the unruly? Let's identify what unruly means. What does unruly mean? That's not even, that's not even a word that we use or it might have a negative connotation. If it does, that's okay. Uh, it should have a negative connotation. Just because you are saved doesn't make you perfect. In God's sight, you are perfected by the work of Christ. So God sees you as perfect in Christ, as we read in our scripture reading. But there is this body of death, Paul says in Romans chapter 7, that you get, you get to carry. And you need to be renewed. There is a lot of putting off and putting on that we need to do. We need to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, as Dagan was even saying. Right? So as you're going through this, if you're expecting no unruliness within the church, um, that's not a realistic expectation. So what does unruly mean? It's... Um, it's the attitude of evading obligations, evading responsibility, trying to escape discipline and not submitting to these obligation that God has for his children. 
some translations have lawlessness or some like negligent towards the law. That's what directly it means. This is actually a word that is used in the Greek for soldiers who are out of their battle formation. When soldiers go out to war, there needs to be a certain level of order that needs to happen. And if one of them, and again, this is an ancient world, so we're not fighting with drones and missiles and, and planes. We are doing hand-to-hand -hand combat. And you guys seen the old movies, right? Like uh, Everybody lines up. And if one soldier is out of step, there's a, weakness, there's a weak point where the enemy can attack. So there's an order, and this is the word for unruly is used for that kind of language. Uh, uh, soldiers that were out of battle order, not in their post. It's even used for music, for those of you that think musically. Music played out of rhythm. Could you imagine us leading worship with a bunch of banging from everywhere and somebody just playing the guitar and just strumming up and down however they want and then there's no kind of rhythm and somebody jumps up and sings the first verse as the other one sings the, the chorus and, and it's just all out of whack. That's the language that is used here when Paul says the unruly. And I want us to contrast that unruly, and you kind of see the chaos happening, right? Like if I just started banging and then somebody else gets up and starts singing and whatever. And if we're not at our post, you see the chaos. I want you to look down with me to First Thessalonians chapter 5, the end of verse 13. Notice how Paul ends that verse where he says, live in peace with one another. You notice how being unruly is contrast to living in peace. See how it interrupts the harmony of Christians and the church living together. When we say live together, I don't mean like everybody lives in the same address. It's how we do life together, how we interact with one another. Right? There's a contrast there that is presented to us. And this includes all kinds of nonconformity to Christ's teaching. Whatever area of life you, the, the church is not conforming to the teaching of Jesus Christ is included in unruliness. And upon true examination, whether it's done actively or passively, Right? We can actually actively be unruly. Like we can do things that disrupt the harmony and the peace in the church. Like slander and gossip and malice and anger. Those things that we are commanded to put off in our scripture reading in Colossians 3. Or we can do it passively. By not even caring. Okay, I'm not actively trying to disrupt. But I'll just stand here and not do what's... I'll, I know what, what, what God requires me to do in the context of the church, but I'm just passive, not doing things. So if we truly examine, whether actively or passively, or maybe it's in a season, maybe it's every summer, 
Or maybe it's when I'm busy with schoolwork. Or maybe it's because, you know, when my parents are busy and, and they don't bring me to church. Maybe it is a season. Maybe you are in a season. No matter what, if we're honest, that describes all of us. We behave in that kind of nonconformity to Christ's teaching in the way that we live, whether we do it actively, whether we do it passively, whether we do it in seasons, in the spurts here and there, that describes all of us. So what does the Lord prescribe as a response to this? He says, what, to do what with the unruly? He says, to admonish. And that is a word that everybody tweets about, right? That's, that's actually your first go-to word when you try to tell somebody to give instruction, right? No, that's not. We talked about it last week and everybody nodded their head side to side, which means no. We don't use the word admonish and we described it last week, which is, which is to impress upon the heart of someone. So what do we need to do when we're in that season or when we notice our fellow brother and sister is going through? By the way, again, you notice in, in verse 14, when he says, we urge you, notice who he's addressing. He's addressing family members. So if you saw your little sister who's two years old or your older brother who, must, who should know better, doing something harmful, doing something out of the ordinary. Whatever ordinary looks like in your family. Would you not instruct him? Would you not remind him what ordinary is? That's what admonishment is. Right? Let's say in your family, there's, there's, there's this rule. No phones at the table. When we eat, we come together to eat at seven o'clock every night and your family rule is no phones at the table. And your little sister, for some reason, can blame hormones for, for a second. So she actively ignores that and brings the, the phone up. Maybe she forgot. Or she doesn't even show up to the table at seven. And that's ordinary. Wouldn't that feel weird? Something is off here. We usually talk and laugh and, and are engaged and we're present with each other. You notice that. And naturally, what would you do to your little sister? You would say, hey, remember, we're not supposed to have phones. Or you just run and, and check on her, hey, you all right? Because we're, we're about to start dinner, come on. And if she says, no, I don't want to. I don't feel like it today. I'm not hungry. It doesn't matter. That's what we do. We just sit here. You don't even have to eat. Come on. Let's go. Admonishment. To impress on the one that is out of step. The requirements of Christ's teaching. So that they can live a life that is consistent with what he teaches us. That's what admonishment is. The instruction is not necessarily just a reminder. It's not necessarily just a teaching. So that we can just say, I reminded them. And so that we can say, we taught them. 
It's identifying a life that is being lived contrary to the revealed will of God and saying, hey, this is contrary to what God has revealed in his word. It may include things like counseling. That's gently reminding and helping out kind of thing, right? It might include like warning them. Hey, if you don't put your phone away, you know, mom go get you. Or you're going to be out of a phone for a whole week. That's warning, right? Or rebuking them. Hey, why would you not do that, man? Like, I'm... And also teaching them by the way you live. And I presented an illustration that is somewhat earthly, and you might think, okay, then it should be easy for the church. But the church's admonishment is unlike other means of admonishment. Because the goal of the admonishment is not behavior change. It's not so that your behavior can be the same as us. The reason why Paul says admonish the unruly, well, the reason why God is... Ex God gives us this duty of admonishment is not focused on the person receiving it. The end result is not the person re receiving it. The end result and the object of admonishment is always glory to God. The reason why we admonish one another, we're called to admonish to one another, is so that God can be glorified. Not so that you can sit through a sermon and take notes and sing loud and just with doing that seem to be more spiritual than, than that. That might be a, a benefit, but it's to bring glory to God. And the means by which this happens is not just mere words. It's not me just reciting words and it's not me saying things and it's not just you hearing my words the means this happens is not by human wisdom but God's the Holy Spirit is the one who truly impresses the truth of God's word in your heart I mean I can stand here and talk to you about what the Bible says and try to teach you all the meanings of the Greek words and the different nuances and whatever else until my, turn, my face turns blue. But unless the Holy Spirit himself applies the truth with power and conviction to your specific circumstance, to your own heart, there will be no transformation happening. So the means is not human wisdom, but it's God's through the Holy Spirit who can truly impress real transformative counsel, rebuke, reminder, teaching, whatever else that admonishment contains. Unless he himself does that, nothing can happen. So as a consequence, the consequence of admonishment is not behavior modification or becoming a better person so you don't come to church to be a better person so you can go to counseling to be a better person 
you can go into a good school and become a, a better engineer or a better student in whatever area of study you want to. You can even go to a job training and become better at your job and be better paid. But the consequence of true admonishment, biblical admonishment, is to be like the one who has been crucified, been resurrected, and ascended and is coming back. It is Christ-likeness. It is dying to self and living to Christ. It is putting off the old self and putting on the new through Christ. So it's significantly different to be admonished in the church. And when, when Paul says, admonish the, 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 the unruly, we're not just trying to correct you. Hey, sit down. Don't walk out every five minutes. Don't do this. And, and you know, sing out loud when we, when, we, when we sing. You know, close your eyes and bow your head when you pray. You know, it's not behavior modification. If the heart is not filled with the true conviction of who Jesus Christ is and what he demands from his church, nothing else would ever be enough. So you stand in danger of just doing this behavioral modification stuff like, you're going like this, closing your eyes and bowing your head when we pray, opening and then opening to the scripture when we read, and then you kind of passively read it, and then nothing really happens that is transformative in your life. And then you kind of just go through life, attending church every Sunday, coming to Bible study, and then there's real, no real transformation happening in your heart. And you go and you sit through your family devotion time with your parents, if there is one. And if not, maybe you have a reading plan and you go through and you scroll through on your phone or you listen to it in your ears. And then you end up before the Lord and he says, I never knew you because there's no real transformative life-giving spiritual life in you. So be warned, be admonished if you do find yourself in this category of people. If you find yourself out of step with God is requiring you to do, whatever that is, that whatever that may look like, that may be fighting against sin. And maybe you're in a period of time where sin is, is really rampant and, and you're struggling with that. Maybe there's doubt. Or maybe there's, there's whatever, fill in the blank. And that has caused you to be unruly. Maybe it's, it's the, the friends and the peer pressure or uncertainty of the future. Wherever you are, be admonished this morning. With the goal being pursuing Christ-likeness to the glory of God. Let's quickly look at the second group of people. The second category is the faint-hearted which refers to a, a level of, uh, or a lack of enthusiasm, a, like, a, like, a, like, like, a lack of real vitality. 
when it comes to your spiritual life. It refers to uh, this displaying of an insufficient level of hope, which leads you to be discouraged. Now, when you look at the level of hope in your heart and you see it's on E, so to speak, if you have insufficient funds in the place of hope, in your bank account of hope, which would then lead you to be discouraged and kind of feel blah, so to speak, when it comes to your spiritual life. And you just have no sense, right? It kind of just, yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. You've seen, you, you've had one of those days where you just don't feel like doing anything. Or nothing, you, you just robotic. Well, actually, the Gen Z, uh, <laughs> how'd you know I was going to say that? The Gen Z term is you're, you're kind of acting like a bot, right? Just going through the motions. There's no real vitality to it. And you're just coming to church, you're sitting down, you hear this boring preacher talk to you about Jesus, and then you have this wonderful sounding sisters leading you in worship, and then you hear some someone that you've never seen telling you about how he served and on the mission field and how God has moved. And then you just go home, take a car ride home, maybe get some, not Chick-fil-A, definitely. I, I want to say Chick-fil-A because that's my default mode of food, right? But you go to whatever, Kava, on your way home. Or maybe you stop at an Ethiopian restaurant and, and get some, some good food. Or maybe you just go home and enjoy your family's cooking. And then tomorrow comes and you go to school. School is still in and they go to work. And then you do it over again. But it's just, just moving through the motions. That category of people is what Paul is referring to. Where the will and the emotion and the intellect are short of vitality. When you look at your will to do and be what God requires you to do. What God has given you. And when, you, you're, when your intellect can't really grasp the fact that Jesus died for a sinner as you for, so that he can give you a life that is eternal, that, is the, that has the quality of his own life to you. And you can't come to terms with that. And your emotion is just not responding to, to what that really means. Martin Lloyd joins, uh, call him the doctor. He's been with the Lord for quite some time now. Uh, he calls this spiritual depression. Right? And you, that, that's a word. That's a term that your generation at this, this, and this time, actually, our society is very familiar with. We're quick to diagnose ourselves with depression because we just feel like, there's no real meaning to life. There's no hope to life. And then that, all of that discouragement, when you feel like that, when it comes to 
God and godliness and Christ-likeness and his word and the work of the spirit in you, when you come to that place where Martin Lord Jones calls spiritual depression, where you can't see the way out of circumstances. So you start losing hope. That's the place that Paul is talking about when he describes people faint hearted. Their heart is faint. Think of fainting and that is losing of consciousness. It's just the limp kind of person that is just fainted in front of you. And he's saying their heart, their inner being, their innermost being is in that state. When you are tempted to emphasize your emotional and intellectual needs as a means to satisfy your desires, to satisfy you and your heart, when you love and your knowledge, your willingness to obey is over, overridden, or you, is, you override that love, knowledge, and willingness to obey by your emotional, intellectual needs as a means of satisfaction. And, and, and your willingness to obey and your love to God and your knowledge to, of Christ grows colder in your heart. And maybe you're realizing this even in this moment. And you're just saying, man, he's describing exactly where I'm going through. And the default position of the flesh is to be discouraged. Like There's no hope. There's no way. The mountain is way too high. The valley is way too low. I am too weak. I am too young. I am fill in the blank. And you lose hope and you feel discouraged. What does the Word of God prescribe to this category of people? And how should we come alongside them and treat them and respond to them when people are going through this? As to say, oh well, I mean, such is life. You know, it'd be like that sometimes. Or even talk to them and say, hey, yeah, I was, I was you know, I, I knew my cousin from my, my you know, from Maryland. He kind of went through that and, and just throw a pity party with one another. No, that's not what he says. He says, encourage the faint hearted. There's this injection of courage that we ought to do to one another. When somebody faints, you come and you try to resuscitate them to life. So when your heart is faint, that's what needs to happen. When your brothers, if your brother or your sister from your own mom and dad were to faint in front of you, your first response is not just going to be like, oh man, I don't know what to do. I'm just, I'm, I guess I'm too young to do. You will find a way to bring them back. Hey, wake up. Shake them up. And if you've gone through CPR class, you do what? You give them CPR to try to bring them back to life. 
That's what the church is demanded to do. That's what the church, as a church, we are urged to do. So if you feel faint-hearted and if you're kind of in that place, we are basically to speak to someone in a friendly way because they're our brother and sister, not in a mean way like what you need. but to come alongside them and to encourage them, to remind them, to speak to them. This word in the Greek is made up of two words, para, which means towards, and matomai, which means to speak, which is to speak towards them. It's like, hey, wake up! Don't feel discouraged. It's not hopeless. It's not the end. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Though you may live this earthly life in the flesh right now, in truth and reality, if you have come to know Christ, you are Christ's. There is a sense where, by which you are not only sitting in this room at this time, but you are seated with Christ because you are hidden with Him and Christ is seated in the right hand of the Father and that's where you are. There is a sense, so to speak, whereby you are two places at the same time. There is this earthly reality where I'm looking at you and you're looking at me right now, but there's this heavenly reality where you are seated with Him and that will be manifest. And when, that, when He is manifest, as we read in Colossians 3 today, in our scripture reading, when he comes and he is manifest, so will you be with him. You will be manifest with him in that sense. So there, there, so there is hope. Be encouraged. Don't be faint-hearted. It's, it, Christ is our hope. So it's not kind of like the, the worldly encouragement, like, no, you are gifted, you know, you are, you are special, you know, you have something to offer and, and be self-affirming and, and, and fill up your self-esteem and look at your, yourself in the mirror and tell self, I am going to positively speak to you. It's not just positive, positive speech, which over time becomes so dull and then it kind of just, just becomes a mantra that you say and then it leads you back to where you started. But what this kind of encouragement is, this encouragement is a supply of courage to restore spiritual vitality, which is primarily grounded in Christ. If you're hopeless, Christ is your hope. If you're losing assurance, Christ is the one who secures your assurance. If you're being lazy, Christ is your example of diligence. You see how everything is rooted in Christ who is all in all? The goal of this encouragement is not to inject some excitement in your life where you feel good about yourself for 35 minutes after service and you're like, yeah, I think God spoke to me. And then come Tuesday, you're back where you were. 
This encouragement constantly is the work of the Spirit who, who is in you and with you and works in you. He is the encourager. He's the helper. He's the one that parakaleo. He comes alongside and he's with you always, right? You're not left as orphans, Jesus reminds his disciples and he reminds us this morning. He is with you to work this with you, in you. When? Every second that you feel discouraged. So the encouragement is to look to Christ, not to look to self, not to look to circumstances, which will lead you to be discouraged. It is to cause you to live in a manner that is worthy of the kingdom. Flip with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you're in chapter 5, it's a page or two before. And look at Paul speak to the church of Thessalonica as he reminds them how he was exhorting them and encouraging them in verse 11. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging, you see that word? Encouraging, bearing witness to each one of you as a father would his own children. So that, you see the result? So that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So with that said, 